1: At the end of our first episode, we noted that Romeo and Juliet is not simply a story of love. It's about how love becomes the origin of tragedy. In this episode, we speak with Simon Palfrey, Professor of English at the University of Oxford, about the play's intertwining of love, loss and death, and about the energy and sense of possibility its characters can possess, especially Juliet.
0: In the popular imagination, Romeo and Juliet has become the world's most famous and celebrated love story. And that is completely understandable. It is a a quite incredible transcendent love story, but it is romanticized and it leads to euphemized understandings of the play. The history of the play continuing to this day has been a history of censorship. It's been a history of, of cutting the play to fit what they think the play should be. And they almost always cut the play so as to make the lovers more normal, more normative, sweeter, more gentle, more romantic, rather than dangerous and violent and difficult and and perhaps distasteful. Because in many ways, both Romeo and Juliet are all of those things.
1: Some readers see Romeo and Juliet not as a sweet story of love, but as a cautionary tale of what can go wrong when adolescents insist on obeying their own immature impulses. One source for the play was Arthur Brooke's The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet, a text which sometimes suggests that blame for the tragedy rests with the couple's irresponsible passion. But Simon Palfrey resists interpreting Shakespeare's play this way.
0: I really dislike the reading of the play which sees it as a kind of didactic play or a hortatory play which is about the need to mature and the need to grow up. This is completely contrary to to the thrust of this play which is far more wild than that. There's been not enough awareness of what it might mean to be young and to be unfledged like these characters are and particularly Juliet.
1: It is the play's youngest character who manifests the greatest sense of wildness in terms of her energy and access to possibility. Thirteen-year-old Juliet has grown up in a clearly defined social world, but she seeks after possibilities that few, if any, of the people around her can imagine.
0: Not all characters who are given this access to possibility, to energy, who are are given this, I mean, I think the best word for it is simply intelligence just unbelievable intelligence. And by intelligence, I mean prescience, alertness, impatience, a kind of linguistic swiftness, but also originality, a a sense in which they're always leaping ahead of the moment. In Romeo and Juliet, that kind of leaping premonitory sort of intelligence, that sense of of, of being alert to futures and, and being alive to possibilities, because they can see the constriction and the dishonesty and the fraudulence and the hypocrisy of what's around them, that apprehensive power is given to two characters, and and they are Mercutio and, in a completely opposite way, Juliet. T.S. Eliot said that the most telling phrase in the whole play was Juliet's when she said, it's too much like the lightning. And that's so true. I mean, it's like lightning, Um, and Juliet is like lightning. She comes, she brightens everything, she brings electrical force, danger, energy, and then it's darkness.
1: No one apprehends this light-like quality of Juliet more than her lover, Romeo. This play was written in the 1590s, when Shakespeare was experimenting with some of the most beautiful, lyrical verse of his career – And much of this beauty emerges after Romeo falls in love with Juliet and attempts to convey his passionate feelings in poetry. When Juliet speaks from her balcony, for instance, Romeo responds with overflowing lines and hyperbolic celestial imagery. Oh, speak again, bright angel, for thou art as glorious to this night being over my head as is a winged messenger of heaven unto the white upturned wandering eyes of mortals that fall back to gaze on him when he bestrides the lazy puffing clouds and sails upon the bosom of the air.
0: There's a language all the time which surrounds Romeo and Juliet, which is in terms of absolutes, in terms of cosmic absolutes, to do with heaven and hell or light and and, and the sun and the moon and so forth. And in many ways, that is the hyperbole of poetic language. It's a hyperbole of of Petrarchan language. But one of the ways that Shakespeare does something different is that he he sort of partly juxtaposes, but also partly interpenetrates this sort of cliched language of cosmic absolutes with a much more kind of grounded language of... where where these characters are connected to the sources of things. When he sees Juliet, his language suddenly changes. Oh, she teaches the torches to burn bright. And it's a very simple and rather lovely kind of image. It's in touch with the sources of energy. She teaches the torches. She's there at the source of energy, of of heat and light.
1: At the ball, Romeo compares Juliet to the torches' flames. In the balcony scene... He famously declares that Juliet is the sun. But what makes Juliet most particularly like lightning is that she possesses not only brightness and energy, but speed. In just a few days, she travels almost the whole span of a human life, from childhood to death.
0: Juliet has this wonderful directness and lucidity, but she also has this impatience and and this speed. And part. So this is partly mental, in the fact that she's just, she's just intelligent. But it's also it's a speed which means that she lives more more lives in one than anyone else. She experiences more lives. She moves more quickly in this kind of virtual way through the possibilities of the human and of life. When we
1: meet Juliet, the nurses' reminiscences and jokes give us an image of Juliet as a baby and a toddler. She is. The prettiest babe the he I nursed in this scene surrounded by her nurse and her mother, Juliet starts off as a meek and dutiful child who promises to favor Paris to please her mother. But by the time the ball ends that evening, Juliet is imagining marriage with a stranger that she just met, and in her next encounter with Romeo during the balcony scene, she takes over her mother's job and makes her own choice of husband. The girl who said that morning that marriage is an honour that I dream not of now proposes marriage to Romeo.
0: She insists. She insists that if you want me, you've got to marry me. You know, it's her words. It's not his. She proposes. It's incredible. And so you have this amazingly fast movement.
1: Juliet's rapid movement through different stages of life is reflected in her rapid movement on and off the physical stage during this scene as she leaves the balcony to heed the nurse's summons. These repeated transitions back and forth between the inside of her family's home and the balcony outside with Romeo show that she is preparing to leave those family ties behind.
0: You have a physical movement away from others in Juliet. So she begins both physically and verbally crowded by the nurse and her mother. And then in the balcony scene, she comes and goes You know, a number of times. She leaves the stage, she comes back. She leaves the stage, she comes back. And so she has this, this vestigial kind of awareness of her ties to others. She's got to be careful about being told off by the nurse or by her mother, which shows she's still imbricated in these relationships. But equally, each departure and each return is, is like another life step, another li- life move. Each return is like a sort of rebirth. Each each departure is a rehearsal for the final departure.
1: The balcony scene anticipates all kinds of future departures for Juliet. Her marriage to Romeo will remove her from the husband her parents chose for her. Her soliloquy, in which she offers to no longer be a Capulet and ponders, what's Montague? What's in a name? Removes her mentally from her family and from the whole conceptual framework in which her family exists, one in which the names Capulet and Montague mean everything. And her farewell to Romeo anticipates their ultimate departure as she sighs. I should kill thee with much cherishing. Juliet herself anticipates that her rapid movement might carry some dark consequence. I have no joy of this contract tonight, she tells Romeo. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning, which doth cease to be, ere one can say it lightens. But all these departures, from social role, from family, from parents, she is ultimately willing to make for Romeo.
0: She's moving so quickly, the institutions and the systems that have always surrounded her, she's, got, she's gone beyond them. And, and all she's interested in is, is them facilitating her movements, like an engine oil or something. That's all they are. They, they're worth nothing other than that.
1: Perhaps the clearest, most devastating moment of Juliet's dismissing the structures of her earlier life is in her pretended acceptance of Paris. Her father has commanded her to marry Paris, not knowing she is already married to Romeo. Juliet, with the friar's help, plans to take the sleeping potion that will make her appear dead so she can be buried in the tomb and escape with Romeo. But first, she goes to her parents and tells them that she will marry Paris as they wish, saying, "'Pardon, I beseech you. Henceforward, I am ever ruled by you.'
0: And it's this moment of lovely, apparent filial obedience. And she does this in the full knowledge that she'll never see them again, and and that they'll never see her again. And it's just a devastating thought. I mean, the clarity, the iciness of that is thrilling, but sort of terrifying. Imagine that if you are as your own daughter, it would just break your heart. But of course, it's necessary. There's something about her being so young, which makes life kind of vertiginous which makes it sudden and, and, and as, as though there's every decision is fatal. Every decision is for all time and, and every, every decision is absolutely lived because there's no mediation, there's no possibility of compromise. And I think her youth allows that because she's so vulnerable.
1: Juliet's absolute uncompromising determination, the determination that makes it necessary for her character to cut off her parents so completely, helps us answer a question about the play that critics often pose. Was there ever a chance it could have been a comedy? At the start of the play, some of the ingredients for romantic comedy are there, Shakespeare even used some of those same ingredients in a comedy he wrote around the same time as Romeo and Juliet, A Midsummer Night's Dream, which also features a pair of young lovers who seek to escape after the young woman's father orders her to marry another man.
0: I I think it's true that the, the play has a structure which is in some way symmetrical in, in the first third or slightly more first half of the play, perhaps to, to comedy. You've got the, the the young couple who rebel against the, the authority, the parents, uh, who seek to go elsewhere. And, you know, in a comedy what would happen is that there's, there's a recognition through some kind of exposure of the folly of the elders that the uh, young couple were right after all. And you get this accommodation between, between young and old, and, and that might work.
1: But Simon Palfrey thinks it's a mistake to believe there's some kind of swerve in the play that reroutes it towards tragedy when it could have once gone another way. The play is established throughout as a tragedy by several elements. One is the character of Mercutio. His puns and bawdy jokes should not lead us to see him simply as an antic form of comic relief.
0: If you look closely at the role of Mercutio, you see that Shakespeare is... Is is an experiment in tragic characterisation that is not fully realised until later characters such as Hamlet and so forth. I think there's all sorts of ways in which uh, Mercutio means his words, means his language, and is a desperately undisclosed, repressed, ex- repressed but also explosive character. He's in, in some ways the epitome of the city. He kind of embodies the city with its violence, its unrecuperated energies. It's got too much energy to be... To be channeled into anything, it's not as though the play was light and breezy, and then suddenly becomes dark. That's completely. That's just not to listen to what Maciusia says.
1: Another source of darkness in the play is the constraint exerted on all characters by their society, a constraint from which even the rebellious lovers never quite
0: escape. Verona is any, is everywhere. The, the simplicity of the setup can stand for any kind of social, political, institutional constraint, predeterminism, existing in a world where your, where your possibilities are restricted, not and obviously about who you can be friends with, who you can marry, who you can intermingle with, but also where you can be, what you can do, and more, darker than that, what you can speak and what you can think. All of these things are preempted by this world as to whether the young character's rebelling against this? I think the answer to that is both yes and no. Obviously, at a really instinctive level, the play's about rebellion. It's it's, it's about dissidence. It's about saying no to unfair prevention, coercion, prescription. I think that, that Romeo and Juliet stand for freedom of choice, liberty, expressing your own truth. That's all true. But we need to qualify that. They, they still work in, in recognisably the same world as everybody else in the play. And there's all sorts of symmetries and 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 repetitions and echoes. You know, one of the very few things we know about Juliet's mother is that she was married off at the same age as Juliet. We see this figure who's kind of a little bit edgy and maybe a bit neurotic and a bit fidgety and a bit dissatisfied. And so you, if, you, if you begin to sort of begin to tot up the characteristics or qualities of Juliet's mother, you think, actually, how is that different from Juliet? She's impatient. She's tetchy. She's resistant. She's been married off at 13. Juliet leaps into liberty and then gets married off at 13. Of course, it's different, but it's radically different in its emotion and its kind of emotional and sort of almost tactile appeal. But there are all kinds of ways in which Juliet moves into something which is no more free, it's 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 it, it's it's caught, and 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 there's no future in it. It's but it's both. It's, as as always, Shakespeare. It's not either or. It's and and and. So yes, to the to the to to the emotional excitement of their resistance and their rebellion and their their independence. That's really really important. But the play is very very hard nosed and, and unillusioned about the cost of that and the difficulty of that. The play does have this deep inevitability about it and that's the inevitability of of the relationship between Romeo and Juliet which is a a relationship which, which is from the very start even before it starts you've got characters and desires which are absolutely indentured to death the play is interested in what happens if you commit to desire if you commit absolutely without equivocation or hesitation or compromise absolutely to The satisfaction of desire.
1: The feature that marks this story most indelibly as a tragedy is Romeo and Juliet's commitment to desire in a play that never forgets the connection between desire and death. The language constantly makes this connection. When Juliet meets Romeo, she says, If he be married, my grave is like to be my wedding bed. Before the friar marries them, Romeo declares, Love devouring death, do what he dare. It is enough, I may but call her mine. When Juliet urges the banished Romeo to linger after their wedding night, he says, Come, death and welcome, Juliet wills it so. And when he descends from Juliet's room, she tells him he is so pale that he looks dead in the bottom of a tomb. Romeo replies, Trust me, love, in my
0: eye, so do you. She does genuinely end up in the places that Romeo invokes in his metaphors. She does end up in a tomb. She is headed directly for this this annihilation. I don't think it's a play that in any simple way conforms to Freudian death drive, but it it is aware of that. It's aware that we die. It's, It's aware that things pass. It's aware that children disappear.
1: As this play sees it, to desire something, to love someone, is to bind yourself to something that you will inevitably lose. And that is how love becomes the origin of tragedy.
0: I think part of the way the play is so moving is because it's so alert to the sacrificial economy of life. The play taps into the knowledge that life is arranged so that people we love will pass from us that there is no such thing as permanence that to fall in love whether that's a, for a, a a sexual erotic partner or 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 a child to fall in love is to know in your bones that this is not forever that this will pass and that 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 love is premised upon a kind of terrified but very rarely expressed recognition of, of transience, and I think that the play is absolutely pivots on that the whole way through. There's a recognition which Shakespeare has all his career of how every achievement is also a loss. It's a tragedy of growing up. It's a tragedy of maturation. It's a tragedy of leaving behind. And this is one of the reasons the parents are so important in this play. Of course, they're 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 foolish and misguided, and perhaps even contemptible. But they do love their daughter. They do love their son. My, ch- my child is yet a stranger in this world. The father's very beautiful way of speaking. This child is precious. She's extraordinary. She's a kind of a gift, but she's not gonna be here for long. Shakespeare's laying the ground for what's gonna happen in the play. My child is yet a stranger and it's telling you that this child is gonna pass. You know, so I think, I think this is why it's always a tragedy. It's always a tragedy.
1: In the next episode, we'll look more closely at the strangely tragic figure of Mercutio. We'll also hear both the passion and the tinge of melancholy in Juliet's words as she prepares to leave behind her childhood and her family for the sake of her love for Romeo.